This morning we will speak on the fool, the fool from Psalm 14. A thousand years before Christ, there were already some who dared to proclaim that God is dead. And even though we can see how times have changed somewhat, the heart of man unfortunately remains the same. These days there are even theologians who study, supposedly studying God, tell us that in a modern technological world, God has become culturally irrelevant and has outlived his usefulness. Yet, yet, as we have all witnessed, and even last night and today as the fallout from the election happened, that uh, suddenly people wake up and they realise that some of the values, some of the things that we have fought for and defended and, and died for, some of our forefathers, some of the freedoms that we so much enjoy, once you, you start removing those, when, when people stray from the principles of God's word, then the nation is, is doomed to failure. And, and God intervenes. God, God moves in and says, enough is enough. Now, those of you with an eye for detail, and if you read the Psalms, you might have noticed that Psalm 14 is very similar to Psalm 53. There are, however, some some differences. And I suppose one of the important differences is is the context. Psalm 14 was written to assure a people facing their sin, whereas Psalm 53 was written to assure people who were facing a national calamity. Now, we're going to look at the psalm in four parts. Firstly, we're going to look at verse 1 and say that only a fool would deny the existence of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, there was a, a, a series probably 20, 30 years ago and one of the characters was Mr. T. Remember him? He was actually a, a, a Christian. Uh, you, would, you wouldn't believe it from the way he looked. Uh, but Mr. T was a Christian and one of his favourite lines was, Pity the fool! Pity the fool! And uh, in some ways I suppose this is this is what we want to we want to say as well this morning. We want to pity the fool. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." Now, the word "fool" doesn't get as much traction these days as it once did. And uh, the Book of Proverbs talks a lot about the fool. Usually, if someone does something pretty stupid these days, we call them an idiot. Now, there are many who use much more colourful language than that, but you get the idea. But here in the Psalms, it does not refer to someone's, it doesn't refer to someone's intellect. It refers, it calls someone a fool who is morally deficient. Someone who ignores the consequences of their actions. 
So who is the fool in Psalm 14? Well, according to verse 1, it's those who say in their hearts that there is no God. That's how foolishness starts. And then he just continues. Today we call these people who say there is no God, we call them atheists. You would think, you would expect that the Bible, through its pages, would spend a lot of time proving the existence of God because there are many people in the world who do not believe in God. So you would think that a large part of the Bible would consist of evidence and arguments so that people who read the book would have answers, would find answers to their doubts. But the Bible does not do that. It doesn't, it doesn't give us arguments in any formal way to, to show and to prove the existence of God. And as a matter of interest, out of the, the Bible has 41,173 verses. I'm sure you've counted them. <laughs> and only a half of one of those verses one half of one verse, it addresses the atheist. This is because the Bible assumes, it presupposes that all men know, deep down, instinctively, that there is a God. God gave man the ability to reason. We call this rationality. Man is a thinking being. Why are we thinking beings? Because we have been made in the image of God. You can't be a normal human being without thinking about all sorts of things relating to God. It just happens. All over the world, in all languages, people know about God, even though... They may not be either Christians or believers, yet they all know what you mean when you use the word God. This is why, this is because man has a God consciousness. Man is aware of the existence of God. So when people say that they don't believe there is a God, what they are really doing is suppressing that knowledge. That's what they're doing. But for me, suppressing the knowledge of God, it's a bit like you go underwater. I don't know if you've ever tried it. Uh, You get into the swimming pool and take a ping pong ball under the water. It floats straight back up, doesn't it? It's pretty hard to suppress a ping pong ball in the pool. And that is what the atheist is doing with the knowledge of God that he has. He is suppressing it, he is burying it, he he wants to lock it up so it doesn't pop out. Why? Why does he do this? Because he wants to live without God. Let me live my own life. As a parent, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. How many times have you heard your kids say this to you? Sounds pretty damning, doesn't it? But that's essentially what we're doing to God our Father. Leave me alone. 
Now, some time back, uh, Darwinians were buzzing with excitement to see the image in the news of a gorilla that was standing upright in a zoo. It got them all excited. Made the news. Must have been a very slow news day. Incidentally, there's a story of a zookeeper who noticed that a gorilla was reading two books. The Bible and Darwin's Origin of Species. And surprised, he asked the, uh, the ape, he says, why are you reading both of those books? Well, said the gorilla, I just wanted to know if I was my brother's keeper or my keeper's brother. <laughs> What's more, I think that those who deny God are not very consistent. Think about it. A clever scientist, a clever scientist sees a rocket, sees a plane and has no problem believing that there is a designer. He sees a portrait and has no problem believing that there is an artist. He reads a book and has no problem believing that there is an author. But when he sees creation, he denies there's a creator, that it's simply just a matter of chance, he says. But that is disturbing because (laughs) you cannot submit these things to chance. Believing there is a God is not really all that earth-shattering. Because if, if, we, if, we, if we make the belief in God as being the be-all and end-all of what we're aiming for in human beings, then we are actually going to be falling short. And I'm not saying this is exactly what, this is what the Bible says. In James 2.9 we read, You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shut up. So the demons don't have any problem believing in God. More than that, they actually shut up at the presence of God. But the thing is that the demons, they don't want God running their life. They have no problem believing in God. And I think, deep down inside, I think a lot of the people exactly fit in this, in this category. So if there is a God, we have to ask if he is knowable, able to be known, and is he relational. We would like to know if he has spoken and revealed himself in a way that we can understand and know him. If the answer is no, then it really doesn't matter if there is a God or not. Somewhere in the past, and a lot of people believe this, they are deists, so somewhere in the past God created the heavens and the earth and then just took his hand off and is nowhere to be found He couldn't care less. Let me explain. What good is is it if there is a God, but despite all my efforts, I can't know him and understand what he reveals to me? What good is it? As I read the Bible, I can see that the God of the Bible is both intensely, intensely relational 
and knowable. He invites us, in fact, to know him. Part of their relationship is getting to know him more and more. That is part of the attraction. And as Christians, we might take this for granted. But contrast this with with Islam and with those who dabble with Eastern religions, whether it be Hinduism or or Buddhism. To them, God is is not personal or or knowable. The, The traffic is... Increase is just one-way traffic, and therefore the, the whole exercise, the whole exercise of knowing God becomes so defeating and fatalistic that you need to ask yourself, what is the point? Just to make another important point on, on this issue is that there are two types of, of atheists, and I want you to listen carefully on this. First of all, is the intellectual. The intellectual atheist is the one who believes there is no God. This is the one that we have been talking about mostly so far. The intellectual. Then there is the practical atheist. He believes in God but behaves like there is no God. Unfortunately, I can tell you but there are many Christians who live like this. Back to the question. Who is a fool? Is it the person who has totally denied the existence of God? Or is it the person who does believe in God and still continues to live as if he's not there, he's not important, he continues to run his own life, his own program. For me, the most foolish person is not the intellectual fool, but rather the practical fool. The one who believes in God, but their lifestyle is godless. Who takes no consideration of God's instructions on the decisions that he makes each and every day. That when things are not going well or when they are going well, he has no one to thank, be thankful to. And when they are, they are, when he's struggling and everything, oh, oh, pastor, can you please pray for me? What, you can't pray yourself? Oh, I'm happy to pray for you. But you, you have access to God directly because of Jesus. You, you, you can know his way by reading his word. No, no, but the Bible, it's all gobbledygook. I don't understand it. Well, have you read it? Well, no, because it's all gobbledygook. Well, read it. Read it. It is life-giving. It is wisdom. It is power. Don't call yourself a Christian and live like there is no God, that there is no Jesus, like there is no Holy Spirit. You are fooling yourself. You are the very person that this psalm is addressing. There is a Bible. I'm not going to live by it. There is a church, but I couldn't care less about attending on a regular basis or being part of it. I'll just run my own life, thank you very much. Let's be honest here. At the very least, 
let's give some credit to the intellectual atheist and say that at the very least he is consistent with his belief. The practical atheist, the practical atheist is the fool. I do hope that this morning you do not find yourself in either of these categories, either intellectual or practical atheist. Secondly, those who turn away from God lose their moral compass, verses 1 to 4. There's the other, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. We're not going to be covering just now, we'll be covering verse 2 a little bit later on. Verse 3, all have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. As we have seen, God doesn't deal with atheism on an intellectual level because deep down atheism is not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. In other words, for the most, atheism is not really a head problem. It is a heart problem. Uh, This past week we have, all over the news, it's been the passing of Bob Hawke. He was a, a good Prime Minister, bad husband and a bad father, but a good Prime Minister. That is my personal assessment and the assessment of others. He brought the nation together. He was able to draw alongside the common person and whether you're the left or the right or you're the rich or the poor, he was able to somehow unite uh, the country in a way that I think we've, we've missed, in a way that... Our country, unfortunately, has become increasingly divided and our politicians are increasingly putting the the wedge to divide us even more, whether it's between man and woman, between believer and unbeliever, between left and right and rich and poor and so on and so forth. But one of the interesting things about Bob Hawke is that he's a PK. His father was a congregational minister in South Australia. And as far as I'm aware, he met his wife, Hazel, in a church camp first time. From my memory, one of the things that uh, turned Bob Hawke away from the Christian faith is that he um, he had an experience. He went to India and he saw the suffering of people over there and the, he could not, he could not uh, redeem the fact that we have a loving God and so much suffering in the world. And so that sort of pushed him to the edge. He was not able to bring those things together. I think from his lifestyle we could probably say that he didn't pursue it further enough. And uh, many of his policies were socialist and, and humanistic 
And I know this is, this is, this is something that as a nation we should be able to, to give thanks to God for the fact that we have a Medicare system, that we have a, a system that tries to open its borders to refugees and others, a caring country, a country that helps people all over the world. Um, and that's good. We, obviously, we can do a lot better than what we're doing, but for the most part, uh, if you've travelled the world, you know how heartless some of the societies can be. But humanism at its very core is Christianity without God. That's what humanism is. They take away all the principles from the scriptures, from the Sermon on the Mount, and remove any reference to God, to those passages that we don't agree with. That's what humanism really is. They have no right to, to claim any of those things if they remove God. Obviously, that's what we believe, but they have no problem with it. Humanism is Christianity without God. So, for all, the, for all the good things that are happening in our society and people want to be morally good, without God, there is actually no basis. There's no reason for you to be morally good. Why should you care about your neighbour? Why should you be your brother's keeper? Why should you care about the widows and the destitute? Isn't it about survival of the fittest? Isn't that just raping and pillaging and everything else? Isn't that what life would become without God? Yes. And it happens. And it's happening. Atheism is not a person who cannot believe in God as much as it's a person who will not believe in God despite the evidence. Now to the person who denies God, the psalmist says, there is no standard in the universe. And if there is no standard for morality or ethics, then anything goes. G.K. Chesterton once said, when people cease to believe in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, but they will start believing in anything. The evidence is all around us. When you cast aside the moral lawgiver, you cast aside the moral lawgiver, then everything else becomes, whatever laws you have become under interpretation of the judges, whoever's making the laws on the day. The same reason people can't find God is the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. He doesn't go looking after him. Why? Because the policeman is going to mess up their lives. When we find the denial of God in society or in personal lives and selfishness and sin and corruptions, these are the things that are running rampant. Look around, lift your eyes and see what happens. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim asked 2,000 participants their response to this question. 
What are you willing to do for $10 million? The answers might surprise you, although will not surprise you at all. Here they are. <clears throat> 3% would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. would have a sex change operation. 6% would change their race. 7% would kill a stranger. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 16% would leave their spouses. 16%, 16%, this is in America, so 16% would give up their American citizenship. 23% would become prostitutes for a week or more. 25% would abandon their church. 25% would abandon their entire family. Now, I reckon if they, this is a few years ago now, I reckon if they did that today, the figures will be more disturbing. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, we see Christianity increasingly come under more and more attack. So why is Christianity under attack today in such a vicious manner? Because when people begin with intolerance toward God, they will end up intolerant towards God's people. If they hated you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you, Jesus said. It's just par for the course. It would seem that the righteous are a favourite, favourite punching bag for the ungodly. This is something that is not only highlighted in this psalm, but it is highlighted in all of the Bible. When atheists see you and me try to live more like Christ, it gets under their skin and their consciousness and they try to find a kink in the armour, trying to get under our skin to, to, to scratch away, to, to pull away and say, well, you're a hypocrite. And so on and so forth. That's the nicest thing that would call us now is a hypocrite. Verse 3 says, All have turned aside, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now this, this verse, is not just the Old Testament, this is quoted in Romans 3.12. No one is good. No one lives up to God's standard. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that people are as bad as possible. Rather, it means that even the good which a person may intend to do is faulty in its premise, faulty in its, in its motive, and, and even then it is weak in its implementation. So even when I help the little old lady across the road, I'm going to take a selfie just so I can put it on Facebook so that all my friends know how good I am. 
That's what, I'm, that's what we mean. That's what the Bible says. You can't be good without following the Lord. However much money you give to the poor, just read 1 Corinthians 13. However many little old ladies you help across the road, if you've rejected the authority of your Creator, nothing you do will impress Him. If you want to impress God, believe in the Son He has sent. And everything you do will be seen through the eyes of Jesus, our Saviour. As Jesus himself said, there is no one good but God alone. He could say that. He was God. Thirdly, verses 5 to 7, God's justice and mercy will reign supreme. There they are, verse 5, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. They are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The psalmist reminds us, you know, in an uplifting ending to the, to the psalm, that the, the eternal hope that we have as children of God and followers of Christ is this. It tells us here that God is present in the company of the righteous. The Lord is the refuge of the poor. The Lord is the one who restores the fortunes of his people. Furthermore, he knows that the help we need can only come from God. He is the one, he is the source Only God can change a life. Only God can save us from the consequences of sin. Story. Years ago there was was an Englishman who went down to one of the countries on the west coast of Africa. Now this Englishman was being shown around one of these villages by an African Christian, now a believer, but the Englishman had no time for the Bible or for God. The, uh, the African was a, a very devout Christian. They came to one of the, the round houses with a thatch roof and the white man said, What's this? Sir, this is one of our houses where our people live. They came to a bigger building. What's this? said the white man. That, sir, is a school where our children learn to read the Bible. Stuff and nonsense, said the white man, reading, reading the Bible. Then they came to a larger building. What's that, said the white man. That, sir, is our church where we worship God. Terrible, absolutely terrible, said the white man. Then they came to a book and the Englishman said, what book is that? That, sir, is the Bible the word of the living God? Is that the superstition you people are taught by your missionaries, said the Englishman? No, that's the word of God, sir, he said. And then they came to a big black pot. 
sort of pot they used to, uh, for their meals. It hasn't been, this big black pot hasn't been used for many years. And the Englishman said, what is that big black pot? And the African said, that, sir, is the pot where we, we would be roasting you alive if it were not for that book. Because that is exactly how they used to treat their enemies. They were cannibals. They would throw them in pots of water, boil them alive, alive, and then they would eat them. I would imagine that after that the conversation would come to a came to a very quick and abrupt end. All around the world, not just in Africa, in Polynesia, uh, in so many parts of the world, individual lives, villages, societies have been changed because of the impact of the Bible. This is, I didn't learn all this stuff from humanism. The result of humanism you see in Cambodia, in Pol Pot. You see it in China and, and in other places. That's, but wherever the, the Word of God has had an impact, lives are changed, communities are changed, countries are changed. The Christian faith has changed people's lives, people's lives for, forever. And don't ever take that for granted. Don't believe the stuff that they writing the papers against the Christian faith. You take away the salt, you take away the light, you remove all the Christians from our society who are praying and upholding our country, who are volunteering in different organisations, who are teaching in our schools, who are serving in Parliament, in the courts, in the law enforcement, in so many areas, in the chaplaincy service, in the emergency services. You take away the Christians. What do you think... What do you think is going to happen to society? Yeah. And that is why we can never slow down. We can never just lower our arms and simply say to hell with that because exactly, that's exactly what's going to happen. So finally, there is a search. The Lord looks down, verse 2, He looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand any who seek God. Many times the scriptures uh, pictures God as looking down upon the earth. At the time of Noah, the Lord looked over the earth, Genesis 6-5. At Babel, the Tower of Babel, the Lord, the Lord looked over the city and the tower that the men were building, Genesis 11:15. And to Abraham, God announced his intention to Look over Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18:21. In each instance, God looks over the earth, he looks on the earth, because man's wickedness has become such an offence to him. And he steps in and he says, enough is enough. Now, it might, it might appear at, at first glance that Psalm 14 is an, an attack on on atheists and murderers and rapists and the like, so, so we dismiss it because none of us 
we think, are in that category. Yet, the Lord looks down and in this period of grace, until the day that he returns, this period of grace that we're enjoying, the Lord sends his people to reach out, to go into the world. It's called the Great Commission, to tell others to turn away from their sin, to seek the living God, to go, to risk life and limb because we know that this life is just a very, very short step, short breather, temporary existence because eternity is forever. To go to them and tell them of the Creator, the God of love and the God of justice. That there isn't a lot of time to come to him in repentance before the door of grace closes, just like the door of the ark. And the Lord looks down to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Are we who are called by his name daily seeking after him? The way we live our lives the way we tell others about him, seeking after him, not the glory of man, not the glory of social media, not the approval, the applause of no one else except one, and that is our Heavenly Father. And God bless us as we strive to serve him. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Faith.